Hello, and welcome to First Importance, the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist Church, West Memphis, Arkansas. Our prayer today is that you will be blessed and encouraged by the message to come. If you have your Bibles, would you join me in the Gospel of John in chapter 13? The Gospel of John in chapter 13, where we continue to unpack this great theme of believe and live. The last two years we have been going through the Gospel of John. We will complete it at the end of this year, Lord willing. But today we will look at uh, these last moments, these last hours, this last meal in the life of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. I want to thank so much, Dr. Milliken, for stepping in last week and preaching on Mother's Day. I know that he preached God's Word and that your heart was ministered to last week. I knew that I was coming up to the betrayal of Jesus, and I said, I do not want to be the pastor who preaches on Judas the betrayer on Mother's Day. And so I let Dr. Milliken uh, preach. No, I was out of town uh, doing a wedding for my brother-in-law, and so good to be back here with you. As you're turning in your Bibles to John chapter 13, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 30 today. I want to ask you a question. Have you heard the one about Ahithophel? Have you heard the name Ahithophel? It sounds a little odd. As a matter of fact, I say the name, it almost sounds kind of like one of those Christian cuss words perhaps you've heard of. You want to be really careful when you say the name Ahithophel, but it's not really a Sunday school story, but we find the life and legacy of this man recorded in 2 Samuel in chapters 15 through 17. He's first mentioned in first in uh, chapter 15 of 2 Samuel, and he was a wise and trusted counselor to King David, a close friend and confidant. And 2 Samuel chapter 16, in verse 23 of Ahithophel, the Bible would say that in those days the counsel of Ahithophel that he gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed by the nation and of King David. David was close with this counselor, this confidant, this friend. He trusted in him and relied upon him. And when we are introduced to this man in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 17, we are introduced in a a tumultuous time during the reign of King David. Long past are the days of his victories and conquest. Many years have passed since his victory over Goliath and then his victory over King Saul and then David having established a united kingdom of Israel, setting the capital in Jerusalem. Many days have passed since his glory days, and King David has let his guard down and has become so at rest, he's, he's let his guard down. And we all know what happened next. He fell into very public sin and scandal as he committed adultery with Bathsheba, who was married to the man Uriah. 
And as if that sin was not heinous enough, and as if it was not public enough, David would send Bathsheba's husband to die. He would have him murdered to try to cover up his sin. So now this once great king, who was, who was always synonymous with victory over giants, and victory over all those who opposed him. This one who, was, who had brought Israel to peace and who united all of them together, this king's name was now forever tarnished. His dynasty, his, his, dynasty, his legacy, all tarnished in scandal and shame, embroiled in this affair. Turmoil has crept into his kingdom, and it began first with King David's own house. His son, Absalom, the heir apparent to the throne of Israel, is now conspiring behind his own father's back. And so if people would travel in to Jerusalem to get justice, to see the king and to get justice for the wrongs that have been done in their life, his own son, Absalom, would meet them at the gate. And he would say something. This is the uh, KJV, King Josh version, okay? The, he would say something to the effect of, you know, daddy's real busy today. And, you know, he was great at uh, war and all those things at one point in time. But he's really not organized this kingdom the way that I would. Because, you know, the gifts that God has given me... Uh, you know what? He doesn't have those people to hear your cause. Let me hear your cause, and I'll give you justice. And he would listen to the people of Israel before they could make their way to David, and he would deal with them favorably. And so the Bible says that in this way, Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel from his father David. And what did he do with this unholy contraband? With all of the hearts that he had stolen from all of the people of Israel, from his own father, what did he do? Well, we learned that after four years of planning and after four years of endearing himself to the people of Israel, David's own son, Absalom, would would be a part of a revolt against King David. He would ask his dad, Dad, give me permission to go down here and sacrifice. That's a vow that I owe to God. And so he, David gave him permission. Absalom went down to sacrifice. And as he did, he rallied all of Israel and said, Proclaim me as your rightful king. You know how bad my dad has led us in the last several years. Proclaim me as king. And all of Israel began to rally beside him. And who was beside Absalom other than the dear friend of and counselor of David, Ahithophel? So Absalom gathers all of the people together. They declare him king and news hits David's ears back in the palace in Jerusalem. Now all of a sudden, he and the rest of his family are in danger. And so David and his family flee the palace. And they're running away. He has been betrayed by his only son. And as he is on his way leaving the city, as he is on his way with his family, he is sobbing going up a mountain. 
thinking of all that he's brought upon himself, thinking about how his son wants his own life, then he hears that his trusted friend and counselor, Ahithophel, is with them. And he's giving Absalom direction and wisdom. They are escaping from Jerusalem as they are enduring curses from people who are lining the road cursing David and his household. And the words that reaches David's ears concerning Ahithophel sting like a blade. The wisdom that Ahithophel gives to Absalom, his son, is David is fleeing from the palace even as we speak. So here's what we do. First of all, David, or first of all, Absalom, here's what you do. He's left 10 concubines in his house to take care of his house. First thing you got to do to establish dominance in this kingdom is you have to go and make those your concubines. A weird chapter in godly wisdom history. He says, then, then give me 12,000 men. And while your dad is on the run, I will go and I will kill him alone. He gives this advice. It is better that one man die and all of the nation have peace. And when David hears this, he begins to sob, running from the palace, being cursed, his own son seeking his life. His trusted advisor has betrayed him. The king weeps. Which brings us, strangely enough, to our passage today. The betrayal and foreshadowing is magnified from King David into the life of Jesus today. Jesus would ultimately fulfill this shadow of things in the past. And as we see Jesus gathered around the table with his closest disciples for the last time, as he washes his feet and serves them, his teaching continues... And we see David's life played out on a grander scale in his life. Look with me now, John chapter 13, beginning in verse 18. Jesus says, hear now the word of the Lord. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask of Jesus whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out 
and it was night. Would you pray with me, please? Father, as we read your word and study it, Father, I pray that you'd speak through me to your people today, and we'll give you all the praise, honor, and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our passage of text today, this account is the betrayal story of all time. All other accounts of treachery and betrayal and deceit pale in comparison to this. They're dwarfed in its shadow. To think of those stories of Benedict Arnold, the traitor to the cause of the American Revolution, this this makes that seem like something very minute and small. Or perhaps you think back to the words of that great emperor whose dying breath looked to his friend and said, et tu, Brute? The betrayal of all of these accounts and all of history pale in comparison to what happens in our passage today. And what makes this passage so unique is to look at the deceit of Judas contrasted with the devotion of Jesus. And that is the central point of our text today. As we look at this account, as we examine it closely, we will see the deceit of Judas sharply contrasted by the overwhelming, abundant devotion and love of our Jesus. So just so you remember, they're sitting around a table about to have the last supper with Jesus. When Jesus, the last time we were together, got up from his place, took off his outer garment, put on an apron, and got a basin of water and began to wash all of the disciples' feet. He then stands and he looks to his disciples and he tells them, what I have done for you is an example. As I have served you, so you must serve one another. You remember Peter was angry with the prospect of Jesus washing his feet. He said, no, never. You will never wash my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, You have no part with me. So then Peter goes overboard. Do you remember this? And he says, well, not just my feet, but my face, my hands, my whole body. And Jesus says, no, all of you are clean. Now, this is where we're starting to get into our text today. Jesus says, all of you are clean. I only needed to wash your feet. Now look in verse 18. But I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. He is saying, listen, I've said that all of you are clean, but there is one of you who are here who is with me, who has been with me all along, who is not clean. My friends, as we look at this devious deception by Judas, We cannot overlook the overwhelming devotion of Jesus. Jesus knew whom he had chosen. The character of Judas 
Jesus knew all about Judas. Before Judas ever became his disciple, Jesus knew that Judas would be the one to betray him. And yet, look at Jesus at this table, serving and washing. Jesus knew. Now, Judas appeared to all of the other disciples to be one of the main key figures of the disciples, as we'll see in just a few moments. But Jesus knew. My friends, I want you to know, all the while, Jesus knew, but it didn't change the way that he treated him and the way that he treated those around him. He knew that all of his disciples would flee. They would run when push came to shove. Jesus knew that he would be alone, but there would be only one disciple who had wanted his life. That is Judas. Jesus says, I know who I am, have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. Notice here, Jesus was always in control. Can I get an amen? In the most difficult period of his earthly ministry, as he endures the pain of the cross and the suffering and the shame, Jesus was always perfectly in charge. He did not haphazardly fall into this scheme. He did not set it into motion and then step away from it. But from the beginning of time, he sovereignly decreed this event, and he was in charge the entire way. Judas doesn't even leave until in a few moments, Jesus will say, it's your time to go. Now tell me, who has that kind of power but our Jesus. You want to know how in charge Jesus was in this scenario? Beaten and mangled, he no longer looked, resembled a a man. A crown of thorns on his head, nails in his hands and in his feet, being ridiculed by all of Israel. And yet there on that mountain, Jesus did not die until what? He said, Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Perfectly in charge. Perfectly over every little thing. He knew what Judas was about to do. He knew what was coming. And yet he he says the scripture will be fulfilled. I've known about this. Now when he says the scripture will be fulfilled. He's about to quote Psalm 41 when he says, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And these are the words of David as he's leaving Jerusalem and he hears of the betrayal of his closest advisor, Ahithophel. So Jesus is saying, I've known about this for an awful long time. I've planned this. From the beginning of time, it does not come as a surprise to me. He's lifted his heel against me. That doesn't make a lot of sense to us today, but in common uh, vernacular, in our terms, he's kicked me while I'm down. He who ate bread with me, he who I had close friendship with me, has kicked me while I was down. In verse 19, I'm telling you this now before it takes place. That when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Now, there is probably none of us can really uh, prophesy or give in great detail how we are going to die. 
and how things are going to go in our lives. But Jesus knew every single detail, and yet here he is. Notice he said, he's raised his heel against me. You're talking about the heel that I just washed? The heel that I just humiliated myself and washed his nasty feet? The man who's going to kick me while I'm down? Look at the deception of Judas in contrast with the perfect devotion of Jesus. Now that's unlike you and me, right? Like I, I want to be like Jesus, but if I knew that you were going to betray me, I probably wouldn't wash your feet, right? right? And if I did, boy, it would be something you would never forget. I assure you, it would be something you would never forget. And yet here's Jesus knowing what Judas, what is already in his heart, what is already happening. And Jesus washes the very foot that will be raised against him. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, first, this verse seems out of place. It seems like this should happen later on when he's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Maybe in John chapter 15, this would be a better location. But you see, all of the disciples, when they eventually find out what Judas has done, they are going to begin to really question in themselves, does Judas's betrayal nullify all of our teaching? And what Jesus is reassuring his disciples here is, he's reassuring him, no, if you have really accepted me, if you have really uh, loved me, if you really receive me, you receive not only me, but the one who sent me. Now look at this devotion of Jesus. He's about to die. It's not any ordinary death. It's gruesome. So much so that in a few moments uh, in the garden when he's praying, he's going to be sweating drops of blood. And here he is reassuring the men that are going to leave him to be with the enemies. Look at the perfect devotion of Jesus. Verse 21, and after saying these things, Jesus was troubled, shaken, stirred. That speaks of inner turmoil, like, a, like an ocean whose waves are going through a, a hurricane and a, and a storm. Jesus is troubled in his spirit, and he testifies, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And this time, it hits home with the disciples. They've heard it several times before at this meal. They've already heard it once, and now he says it just outright, one of you. My closest 12, one of you will betray me. Also notice Jesus didn't sugarcoat things. In another gospel, Jesus would say of this betrayer, it will be better for him had he never been born. Jesus didn't say that it was okay. He did not condone but all of it worked perfectly with his sovereignty and, as we'll see in a few moments, with Judas's own ability to make this and willingly make this decision. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Now, this causes turmoil 
amongst his disciples. They're sharing what they are probably beginning to understand, if only in part, is the last meal that they'll have with Jesus. If he is to be betrayed, as he has just said, could this be our last meal? Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Now, I like this verse for a few reasons. Number one, for them, they all knew one another, and so they could not see possibly how it could be any one of them. They knew all of their faults. They knew all of how much they've loved and followed Jesus. After all, didn't all of them at the end of John chapter 6, when Jesus pushed away the crowd by preaching, if you really want to come after me, if you really want to be a part of my kingdom, you have to drink my blood, my blood and eat my flesh. And everyone leaves except for these 12 disciples. And Jesus says, don't you want to leave too? And they proclaim back to him, Jesus, where else will we go? You alone have the words of life. All of these disciples are looking at one another, and they're wondering how could it possibly be either one of us? And at the same time, I imagine in their minds, how could it not be one of us? We're a ragtag bunch of fishermen and tax collectors, of zealots. Some of us have been known to fly off a handle, Peter, Some of us has known to doubt Thomas. They begin to look around, trying to figure out who it is. They're sharing this last meal together, and they're uncertain. Verse 23, and one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, that is John, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. John is on the right side of Jesus, and he's leaning back upon Jesus spending these last moments with him. He loves Jesus. He's reclining at Jesus' side, verse 24. So Simon Peter motions to him. See, there's commotion, okay? There's all this commotion going around the dinner table, and Peter motions to him, hey, find out who it is. Who is it? They're all talking. Is it you? Is it you? Do you have plans? No, it's not me. I would never. No, I would. It could not possibly be me. Peter says, obviously, Jesus knows something that we don't. John, figure out, figure out who it is. And what I've always assumed was a loud verbal affirmation appears now to me after studying to have been a private, quiet, whispered conversation between Jesus and John. And I, I believe I can prove that to you when you look at the confusion of the disciples in just a few moments. Verse 25, that disciple leans back against Jesus and he says to him, Lord, who is it? And I can almost picture Jesus leaning over to John's ear and whispering, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So he dipped the morsel and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now this is easy to pass over, but we know that Jesus, uh, that John rather, is on the right side of Jesus. The way that the table would be set up is not like our table set up. And by the way, it's not anything like the Last Supper painting. They weren't all on one side of the table, uh, cheesing it up for the camera for them to to take and to put on later. It was probably a U-shaped table, and they were all laying on their sides on pillows on on a much shorter table with their elbows up on the table. 
John would have been on the right side of Jesus, leaning back against his chest. And Jesus, it appears here, would hand the bread to someone who is very close to him, <coughs> perhaps directly to his left. Now, this has great significance, too. Because you remember all those times Peter and Andrew and all of the disciples would be arguing about who is the greatest, and Peter and Andrew's mother would come to Jesus, Lord, grant it to me that you would allow Peter and Andrew to sit one at your right hand and your left hand in the kingdom. Jesus tells her it's not for me to give that to them. And here, Judas, in all likelihood, is sitting to the left of Jesus. And Jesus takes this morsel of bread, Jesus being the host, and he hands it to Judas. Now, in Jewish New Testament custom, the host always served the guest of honor first. So Jesus takes the very first piece of bread, he dips it, and he hands it to the guest of honor, Judas. It's not a sarcastic show of love. It's not a display of, of uh, anger or passive aggressiveness. Jesus here is showing his pure, unadulterated devotion to the one who was seeking his own life. Notice Judas wants him dead. We knew this ever since the Saturday before when they had that meal together at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And Mary broke that bottle of perfume and, and, and put it upon Jesus' feet. Ever since then, Judas was angry. And if you'll pardon the pun, incensed. He was angry. Jesus just simply wasn't worth that. And yet here is Jesus handing the first piece of bread to the honored guest of the meal. Judas. Verse 27, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. It was almost as if Jesus was giving Judas one final chance. It had been sovereignly decreed from the beginning of time that Judas would betray Jesus. And yet, Judas freely chose to betray Jesus. Jesus extended this one last act of grace. Take this bread. He showed him honor and love. But Judas's heart was already made up. And in that moment, Satan entered Judas. He had only motivated him before, enticed him and tempted him before. But now Satan in complete control and possession of Judas. And Jesus looks at this enemy and says, what you're going to do, do quickly. Look at the love and devotion of Jesus in sharp contrast with everything that we can possibly comprehend. If we're betrayed, if we know that we're going to be betrayed, my goodness, we're going to get the first lick in. 
Uh, we're going to be the one. I'm, listen, I mean, God's still working on me. I hope that that wouldn't be the case with me. But man, if you find out, you would want to be the one who gets the first lick. You want to make sure that you can, you do more harm to them before they can do it to you. And yet here is Jesus saying, out of obedience to the Father and his love for his people, here is Jesus looking to Judas, now filled with Satan. And he says, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, the disciples still didn't understand. This is why I believe it was more of a whispered conversation between Jesus and Judas. Because look in verse 28. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. Judas leaves, never to return. His decision has been made. Opportunities have been granted to him to repent and to love and to serve Jesus. But the opportunity has run up, out. The time for conversion was over. The decision was made. And may I say, friends, right now to you today, that God extends to you the opportunity of salvation. He ex extends to you a free gift in salvation bought, purchased by the blood of Jesus. He has offered that to you. But and the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. But friends, I want you to know that that offer is not always on the table. There is coming a day when you will no longer be able to turn to Jesus. Some of you say, I'll turn to him later on when I'm at the end of my life. I'll turn to him later on when it's more convenient for me. But friends, I want you to know there's coming a day where the invitation is withdrawn. So today, if you hear my voice and you hear the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart to repent and to turn to Jesus, even if you look like a close advisor, even if you've looked like a close friend of Jesus for all these years, but deep down you know that you have been the only one that you've been serving, I beg you right now to turn to Jesus because Judas's moment was up from that moment on. And the scripture ends, our passage ends today with saying, and it was night. This is not just a statement about the time of day that it was. It was night. But never before had there been a darker period in human history than what was to happen in the next 12 hours. The murder of the one and only Son of God. Now, you know, I began a story earlier and I didn't finish it. You remember King David is on the run. He's leaving Jerusalem and he is sobbing. He's been kicked out by his son who wants to take his place because he is his heir. He has been betrayed by his closest advisor, Ahithophel, and Absalom, his son, and Ahithophel are discussing what happens next. I've already told you the wisdom. Ahithophel says, let me go kill him. I'll take 12,000 men. I'll go kill him. It's better that one man die and all of the nation have peace. But Absalom says, you've got great advice, but let me check with one other person. And God put in Absalom's way an advisor who was loyal to David. Then he goes, no, 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 no. You don't want to go after him. You don't want to send uh, Ahithophel after him with 12,000 men. Your daddy, is a, he's a tough old hombre. And he may be on the run, but he is a man who can fight. And all of his people are, are going to be willing to come and fight. And if they defeat you, your kingdom will come to an end. No, here's what you do. Let's gather all of Israel together. Then you personally, you go and kill your daddy. 
So he says, that, that is the plan. Now this buys David time to cross the Jordan River and assemble his troops. Now Ahithophel hears that his plan has not been taken into account. And realizing his betrayal, Ahithophel goes home, gets his house in order, and then he hangs himself. Sound familiar? So David and his army is across the Jordan River. And they're preparing to go into battle. The generals say, David, you stay here on this side. We'll go over and fight. We don't want them to kill you. It's better that we die than you die. Let us go over there. But David says, listen, listen. Okay, I agree with you. But please, please deal gently with my son, Absalom. I know, I know he wanted my life, but he's still my son. Be gentle with my son, Absalom. They agree. And the generals go over to war. And that day, 20,000 Israelites die in battle, most of them in a forest. And Absalom is riding his donkey through the forest. And somehow, some strange way, only when you're going against God can something like this happen in your life. Somehow, he gets caught up in an oak branch. The, The donkey keeps moving, and he can't get loose. When some of David's generals and men walk by, and they see Absalom, and what do they do? Joab, the general, grabs three spears and thrusts it through him and kills him. Now, they make their way back to David to give him the great news of victory. But David's really concerned with one thing. What about my son, Joab? And then they tell him. He didn't survive. And David begins to weep. And he goes, I wished it would have been me. And not him. Now, think about this. David is exiled from his kingdom by his own people. They thrust him out of Jerusalem, just like Jesus. Like Jesus, David ascends the hill weeping and being cursed by his own. Just like David, Jesus would be uh, exiled from Jerusalem. They wanted uh, his, his own people would want to take away his authority and they would have him killed. But unlike David, Jesus would go and he would die for his people. He wouldn't mourn, oh, that my children have to die. He would come to this earth and die for our sins so that we could be with him and live with him forever and ever. You see, this wasn't just some small plan contrived by God in the gospel. Not some plan that just came somehow haphazardly into fruition. But all throughout the Old Testament, we see Jesus being illustrated until finally he's here. And Jesus dies for our sins. But see, David, he couldn't die and remain the king. But Jesus knew knew something that no one else knew. They would kill him, but three days later, Jesus would rise from the grave because the crucifixion can't take away his crown and the death can't take away his dominion. He lives forever and ever. He lives to intercede for you and me. He lives to give strength to those who are his. He lives to bring eternal life for those of us who have repented and called upon the name of Jesus. We have a king who's greater than David. We have a king who's greater than any politician or anyone that we have today. And as we see the betrayal of Judas, we can't help but notice the beautiful and magnificent, eternal devotion that Jesus displays toward his people. Now let me say this in closing. 
Jesus is patient with us, and he is kind. But there is coming a day when every man, woman, boy, and girl will face judgment. And you'll stand before him. And there's no sin in your life that is hidden from him. Everything will be bare and before him. Everything you've hidden from me and other church members, everything you've hidden from your family, he knows about. He knows every detail about it. And you will stand and give an account. And your goodness will not get you into heaven. But he has provided a way through his son Jesus. If you will repent of your sins and call upon the name of Jesus, you can be saved and have the eternal life in heaven with him forever and ever that he promises all who repent and believe. Would you bow your heads with me? Father. Thank you for joining us for this episode of First Importance. We invite you to check out our other sermons on this podcast and to join us in person on Sundays at 8.30 or 10.45 a.m., as well as streaming live on Sunday mornings at 10.45. We hope to see you soon at First Baptist West Memphis, where we love God, care for one another, and share the gospel.